The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So in the last number of weeks, been exploring the topic of how ignorance and craving are really kind of the the ground of the habits of mind that lead to struggle, suffering, distress. Both the more obvious kinds of struggle and suffering and the subtler. And today, I think this will be my last talk on this. I looked yesterday, and I think I've given about seven talks on this topic so far, so I've been kind of covering it in some detail. And today, I'd like to really look at, at ignorance and craving and how our practice of mindfulness helps us with this. We might think just from hearing, like, ignorance, how, how possibly can mindfulness help with this? You know, ignorance being an obscuring quality. So how can we see ignorance? How can we be mindful of ignorance? And so that's kind of the terrain I'd like to explore today. But first, to give a little bit of a, of a context and a little bit of an understanding of ignorance and craving from this perspective of what, of what suffering is. So... Um, The understanding that the Buddha explored and, and opened to in his own experience when he began to ask this question of, I mean, his, his whole journey, his whole path, his whole spiritual journey was kind of centered around this question. Is it possible to be for humans to be free of suffering? And he began that exploration by looking as, well, is it possible for one being, is it possible for this being to be free of suffering? And he began his exploration and studied with the various teachers of the day, um, learning about deep states of concentration. And in those states of concentration, he was quite happy. I mean, the, the concentrated states themselves are quite delightful. And yet what he, he, he said he found when he came out of those states was that the same patterns of, of suffering were still present. And so it hadn't really, uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a temporary break from suffering, the human condition, the suffering in the human condition, but not an ending of it. And so he kind of went out on his own to explore, well, what is it possible? I mean, the, the teachers that I've talked to, they, they haven't answered that question. Maybe, maybe I can discover it. And my sense is that what he began to do is um, rather than simply concentrating the mind in order to attain or to um, have a temporary break from suffering, what he did instead was to use that concentrated mind, to use the tools, to use the the um, the stability of mind that comes with concentration and the mindfulness that's embedded in that rather than for the purpose of having a happy sitting instead to begin to look at this question of suffering in our experience and so instead of in, so it's really about the purpose or the aim with which we use our mindfulness 
And so the Buddha began to, to be curious about, well, what might be able to be learned by looking at this experience of suffering, this human experience of suffering? And what he, he discovered is these similar patterns at work in his own mind and began to articulate them. And um, they are patterns at work in human minds. This pattern around basically the first, um, the first recognition or understanding was that there is suffering and this suffering is not necessarily about the objective reality. There's stuff that happens in the world. There's stuff that happens out there in the world about which we struggle and about which we experience suffering. Illness, disease, accidents, um, fires, tsunamis, uh, injustice. So there are things in the world about which we we suffer but and what he said is that is not going to change but we can what he what he's he found is that what what we call suffering actually is not actually that stuff that's happening in the world but our minds reacting to it with confusion with craving with greed, with aversion, and that the possibility exists of having a different relationship with what's happening in the world, a relationship of wisdom, of love, of compassion, of joy at times when beautiful things happen in the world, of equanimity. And yet that equanimity that he's pointing to and when you know, we might think of equanimity, equanimity is a word that we don't use too much in the English language, but it basically means something like balance of mind. It's the terrain of, of peace, of ease, of settledness, of non-reactivity. And we might hear that, non-reactivity, and think that what that means is that we would just be perfectly okay with whatever's going on in the world that we would um, um, see injustice and just sit there and saying, oh, I'm okay with that. But that is not what happens with this wisdom and this compassion that grows as the reactivity falls away, as greed, aversion, and delusion begin to be seen as processes in our own mind. These... um, processes in our mind of like wanting something to be a certain way, like the pull towards um, the engine that gets churned up around having to do something in a particular way or the aversion to, to something. We can be in the presence of things that we like and things that we don't like. We can be in the presence of pleasant, unpleasant, even very strongly pleasant and unpleasant experience and not be... Um, whipped up by it into having to um, uh, hold on or push away what's there. And what that creates in our hearts is not a, a kind of a settle back saying, oh, well, okay, guess I don't want anything. Because um, there is a form of desire of, of wanting that comes with wisdom. 
one of my teachers, uh, my Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, says, wisdom wants to do things. Compassion wants to act. And that, uh, that kind of movement of heart is a very different relationship to the world. And so the, when greed, aversion, and confusion begin to be released and instead we are in a non-reactive mode, what seems to happen is that we become responsive with wisdom, with compassion, with love, generosity, rather than with reactivity of aversion, greed, confusion. And so this is, this is the, the kind of the pointing that the Buddha said that the suffering that happens, that we have some measure of agency with, some capacity to change, because it is conditioned in our system this greed, this reactivity of greed, aversion, and delusion, the ignorance. It's conditioned in us through the way we've lived our lives, through the way our culture has taught us this is what's valuable, these things are good, these things are bad. So we've been conditioned. And the, the, the process of our practice begins to recondition us in a different direction towards appreciating a whole different kind of, of happiness. The usual way that we find happiness, and this is where the ignorance maybe is articulated, this ignorance that's kind of at the root of this whole process of struggle and suffering. Now again, you know, it's not, the Buddha is not saying that what's happening in the world is going to stop. But our relationship to it changes so dramatically that we, um, we stop experiencing the hatred, the anger, the confusion, and instead are experiencing wholesome qualities that motivate us to respond in the world. So the, uh, the, the basic ignorance that's kind of at the root of this is an ignorance that's connected to how we think happiness happens. You know, the, the way we're taught, the way, our, the, the, way the commercials work, you know, the, the advertisements that we see on television, basically they're saying something like, have this thing and you'll be happy. And that's the way these advertisements work. They are filled with people who look delighted to be having a pizza and drinking a Coke and everything is wonderful in their lives because they're doing this. And, you know, this is, this is what we're taught. And I think partly we're taught this because, you know, it's a way, it is a kind of happiness to have something that we want, to have these simple things to, 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 to get things that we want to get rid of what we don't want. There's a kind of happiness that comes with that. You know, there's, some, there's a few moments of happiness that come with having a pizza and a Coke. It doesn't last very long. And so this, this, um, this kind of happiness that we get from this, essentially, it's the rare person, I think, someone like the Buddha, who begins to discover that that kind of happiness of the getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, isn't actually the greatest kind of happiness that's possible for us as human beings. That, that it, 
it is a form of happiness, but what it tends to do is to reinforce, well, the last time. So when that kind of happiness of having that pizza and Coke ends, then we are left in a place where it's like, oh, okay, what's the next way I can get a moment of happiness? Well, the best way I know to get happiness is to find something that I want or to get rid of this unpleasant thing. And so we're on this, we're tight, kind of on this tumble, this cycle of, of wanting to have something in order to be happy. And so there, there, there is a form of happiness that comes with that. And so basically, as human beings, until we meet something like the teachings of the Buddha, we think that it, as it, the best happiness that's possible would be to string, like, like, you know, string beads on a string, one moment of happiness and the next moment and the next moment. And if we could make a string without any gaps in that, that would be as good as it gets. Even making that string without any gaps is like nearly impossible. But, but that's what we're going for, is stringing those beads. And so there's, a, there's a, a kind of a fundamental confusion or ignorance in this. First of all, in that we think this happiness is as good as it gets. That's a fundamental kind of mistake that that is the best kind of happiness that would be possible to, to string those, those beads. So that's one mistake that we make. The, uh, the other mistake is to think that, that following through on wanting is a good idea. Um, that, that kind of needy, needy wanting, not the kind of wanting or desire that comes with um, um, wisdom and compassion, but the kind of wanting that comes with uh, aversion and greed, a kind of a neediness. And so what, what, we, what we start to explore or what we start to understand is that um, the wanting itself, that neediness, the greed, the aversion itself, um, when we look at it with mindfulness, and this is a big part of how um, we begin to understand this. So this is really where the, the practice begins to integrate with this understanding. That we, we begin to look in our human experience at the experiences of greed, at the experiences of aversion. And so the experiences of greed are familiar kind of emotions like pride and um, neediness and um, feel, feelings of aversion or, or familiar emotions like uh, anger and fear and rage and irritation and so those kinds of emotional, so reactive emotions. This is what it means to, to look at these. So looking at these with, um, with mindfulness, we start to recognize and um, what, what the instructions about this are is to kind of Explore what is the experience of this greed, of this aversion. That's not our usual relationship to greed and aversion. The usual relationship to greed and aversion is follow through on that greed. Get that thing. That's how you'll be happy. Follow through on getting rid of that thing. That's how you'll be happy. So that that's the usual relationship with greed and aversion. And what the practice, what the mindfulness practice asks us to do instead is to turn towards the experience. What is the experience of anger? What is that experience of that neediness, of that wanting? 
wanting to, feeling like that wanting. I'm not going to be okay unless I follow through on that wanting, that kind of wanting. What is that experience? We turn towards that with mindfulness. And what we start to recognize is that it doesn't feel good to, to have that craving. Craving being the kind of umbrella term for that kind of greed and aversion. Craving to get rid of, craving to have. It doesn't, craving does not feel good. And yet it has confused us. So within that craving, within that wish to have or to get rid of, there is this belief that the having or the getting rid of will make me happy. And so when we're caught by that craving, we're caught by that ignorance. We believe that, that having that thing or getting rid of that thing is the way to happiness. And basically through that, we are missing. So the, that, that, that ignorance there, that misunderstanding about, about the, the craving is preventing us from seeing that it's painful to have that craving in and of itself because we're so focused on the thing in the world. We're focused on the, 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 the getting and how wonderful it will be when we get that thing or how wonderful it will be when we get rid of that thing. We'll have another bead on our string. That will be great. And so we, we have that, um, that orientation. And so we are missing a whole chunk of what's actually going on in the present moment. So this is how ignorance works. The ignorance embedded in craving is that having that thing, getting rid of that thing, is the best kind of happiness that's possible. So I need to follow through on that. And so that misunderstanding creates this this delusion. It's kind of an obscuration of the suffering that's happening in the moment of the craving itself. And so this is is one of the things that we begin to uh, open to with mindfulness. This takes a little bit of, of wisdom. It takes a, the teaching of the Buddha to point us to. It's useful when you're experiencing reactivity rather than to simply follow through on it to look at what is that experience. What is anger? What is the human experience of anger? What is the human experience of, of that craving, that neediness? So what does that feel like? It doesn't actually take too long when we get that instruction. I was, you know, when I first started this practice, I had read a book that suggested something like this, you know, can be useful to, rather than, following through on your reactive emotion, turn towards it with mindfulness. And um, one of the biggest ones for me was anger. And so when anger arose, it's like, okay, I'm going to see if I can be mindful of this. It was like really glaringly obvious to me that this did not feel good. I had no idea what to do with it other than to just recognize, wow, that hurts. Anger hurts. And so seeing that, you know, it exposed a lot of things, such as the belief that 
In this particular case, I was angry at a particular person. And one of the beliefs that was there was, well, this anger is going to make the other person really miserable. And um, yet I was missing that it was making me miserable. That that anger was actually hurting here and now. That's the way the delusion works. It obscures that pain because we're thinking and kind of projecting into what we think we're going to get out of it. And in this case, it was, it was kind of humbling to see the mind think, yeah, this, this is going to make the other person miserable, you know, that I actually wanted somebody else to be miserable. They had hurt me, so I wanted them to be miserable in return. You know, that, that was really humbling to, to see that as a kind of a, a fuel for that, that anger. So this, it doesn't take very long as we, as we start to explore this simple question of, well, what is the human experience of our reactivity? Turning away from the thing that we're reacting to and turn towards that experience. So this is mindfulness. This is our practice. And, and yet, you know, we might think you know, something that we, we sometimes um, think is coming to a meditation practice is that, well, what I hear is that meditation is supposed to make me feel good and I'm supposed to, like, have ease while I'm meditating. And there are times where we cultivate that side of the practice. In what I was, we were exploring in the guided meditation today, we were exploring some of that. The ease with which the ear hears. You know, we don't have to work too hard to do that. So we can settle back and just receive. So there, there can be some ease that gets cultivated through the mindfulness practice. And yet if we, if we think that all we're supposed to do in our, in our practice, in either in daily life or in sitting, is to feel more and more ease and more and more just calm and calm and calm and nothing challenging, then we will feel like there's a mistake when we see something like the pain of anger. And it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake when we turn towards the experience of reactivity and feel the suffering of it. Basically what that's doing is exposing the delusion that had been masking that suffering. And so here we get to see it why does that help, you might ask. <laughs> I certainly did. It's like, wow. Okay, so when I pay attention to my anger, it hurts. Okay, <laughs> how does this work? <laughs> won't that just make me more angry? You know, won't it just fuel that? And yet, actually, no, it doesn't. Partly because it's a completely different relationship to the anger, to the reactivity, to whatever kind of um, craving is happening. It's a, it's a relationship that is um, helping to expose something that's already here. And sometimes people, people have said, I'm more angry when I meditate. Well, you're more aware of it. You're more aware of the struggle, of the suffering. And this is what the Buddha pointed to in the First Noble Truth. The, the understanding of suffering. Suffering happens and it needs to be understood, not in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way. And so as this becomes understood through mindfulness, the, the recognition of 
this is what it feels like for a human being to have reactivity. So what seems to happen there is that that understanding, which has been obscured, now being seen, creates new conditions in the mind, helps us to recognize that, uh, for me, I mean, it was was kind of eye-opening that I've been thinking that this anger was, like, going to help me, but it's making me miserable. You know, that, that, that the seeing of it as, as something that my own mind was doing, thinking it was going to be helpful for me, but it was actually hurting me. And so when our own minds begin to recognize that they are participating in how we are struggling and how we're suffering, our minds begin to, partly through our natural... Um, our system, our system does want to be happy. And yet with this obscurity of delusion in the way, where the, the, the whole way that you know, views and agendas and ideas influence our actions and our choices and help keep us from seeing things, actually, that that, that, um, that presence of that has obscured this pain that's happening. And so the system wanting to move towards well-being is following those cravings. You know, the, the system wanting to be happy is following the only way it knows to be happy, how it's learned to be happy, how it's been conditioned to be happy through, through our culture, through our families. And so that it's like the, 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 the mechanism that wants to move us to, towards happiness is it's just confused. It's not the mechanism that's confused, but the views and the ideas and the beliefs are confusing how that mechanism works. And so when our system gets this information about reactivity being the uh, fundamental player in the way that we struggle, in the way that we suffer, our system, that is new information to this mechanism. This mechanism, it's like it's new conditions for this mechanism that wants to lead us to well-being. So instead of just having all the commercials and all of that stuff feeding us to say this is how you find happiness, now there's new information that says, well, hmm, maybe not. Maybe there's, maybe there's something else. And so our system begins to play with the, the conditions and starts to recognize that its, its own contribution to our suffering might be able to be released And so in our mindfulness practice, there are these two sides to our practice. There's the practice where we do explore settling the mind, where we explore the possibility of ease, like with the the hearing, you know. So we might, I pointed to in the hearing, noticing the ease with which hearing happens rather than focusing on the preferences about what you heard that might have created a little more sense of just a very natural process unfolding, maybe a little bit more sense of of ease in the meditation, I guess kind of a container of, of ease potentially. So sometimes we can cultivate that side of the practice. Sometimes we can do that with staying with the breath and just letting thoughts go. We can do it with 
just this receptive quality and allowing what's there to just be, you know, just the, the ease of that receptive, that receptiveness. And so we, we have this side of the practice where we cultivate that kind of ease and, and peace. And that's useful partly because it does point to a different kind of happiness than getting something, than having something. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of more that we see, oh yeah, I don't have to have all the sounds be exactly what I prefer. There can be an ease with just hearing what's offered, with being with what's offered. And so that's, that's a different kind of happiness that we begin to touch into through the meditation practice. And we also cultivate this capacity to begin to turn towards our reactivity, to explore, well, what is this reactivity that's happening? And begin to see, I mean, uh, uh, you know, when I, when I was exploring that anger, there was this, this definite sense of something outside needed to change. You know, that person had to humble themselves before me and tell me they were completely a bad person or whatever. You know, there's some idea that I had that something out there had, or, the, or, or that I think one of the ones my mind believed is somehow history had to be rewritten so that that had never happened. That would be how I could be happy. This, this sense of this was just wrong that this happened and there's no way to be happy unless somehow history gets rewritten. So there's this, this kind of view or belief that's, that's functioning around that. And then when I saw that, when I saw that belief that something outside needed to change in order to be happy, you know, that, that's actually a really, um, uh, it's not a very reliable way to go about happiness is to try to control the world. Because the world is not very controllable. What other people do is not very controllable. How they act, what's going on is not. We cannot control that to make it our perfect world. And if we did make it our perfect world, it would not be somebody else's perfect world and then they would be miserable. So this, this, you know, this movement to try to arrange the world like, like blocks, you know, to string those beads perfectly it's destined to have holes in it. And so the, that, um, that movement towards that is a fundamental mistake in our minds. So that sense of, when I saw that, when I saw that, my mind thought it needed to change the world and that the anger was here inside of me, there was a kind of a, a, kind of a shifting there. The, the mind begins to recognize, you know, that it isn't so possible to change the world. And, and the, the seeing of the suffering of the reactivity around what's happening in the world, our, our system begins to be curious about it, and at times with mindfulness, we begin to see, and, and I certainly saw this many times in exploring anger, exploring impatience, exploring confusion, exploring neediness. It's like that there's suffering in that, and the feeling of that, oh, this is what it's like 
to feel neediness. This is what it's like to feel anger. And another really helpful tool in that turning towards mindfulness with, with, to those reactivities is to remind ourselves, this is the human experience. This is a human condition. Of course, this is the way the mind works. This is the way it's been trained. This is what I've learned through my life that happiness would come this way. Now new information is coming and part of that new information is helping us to see this is the human experience of reactivity. It hurts. So this is the second side of the practice is opening to the, uh, the suffering of our reactivity. And it's not that the meditation is making it Worse, it's revealing suffering that has been there all along, that has been gnawing at us from inside. We've been mistakenly thinking we know how to get rid of it, but what we've been doing instead is just digging our hole deeper because what we've been encouraging and supporting is that craving, that craving. So we're just kind of digging that hole deeper, encouraging that craving to be the way that we engage. And as soon as we turn towards it and recognize, as soon as the mindfulness recognizes, oh, this craving is suffering. That experience does not feel good. And yet, pretty quickly, we do also start to recognize the difference between that kind of suffering, that kind of recognition of, oh, craving hurts. Anger hurts. That seeing of that is a very different experience than just following through on it. And so there's a, there's some teachers say that that kind of suffering is a suffering that begins to lead us to the end of suffering. Because it, it does help the mind. It, it's the mind has new information. This new information that this craving is suffering. That's a radical shift for the mind to begin to really understand that. And this process or this movement to well-being now takes that into consideration. And so we cultivate both sides with mindfulness. This capacity to meet the suffering and at times when it's really, sometimes it can get strong, the suffering. And sometimes it's stronger than we really have the capacity to meet with mindfulness. I certainly had that with, with in the early uh, years around anger in particular. The seeing that any time I, I noticed the anger and tried to turn towards it with mindfulness to notice it, the feeling of the pain of it was so strong that I just kind of sunk into it. And so began to realize that that wasn't so helpful at times to, to turn towards it. And then just shifted to the, all right, well, maybe I can just be with something that's more easeful, something more neutral. Just this sense of contact of the feet on the ground. So working on that other side for a little while, seeing if I can decouple from the, the, the pattern around the anger for a moment, not to repress it, not to push it down, but to just like set it aside. I would kind of bow to it and 
and say, yeah, I see you. And why don't you take a walk with me? But I'm going to pay attention to my feet right now. So that it was a very friendly kind of setting aside. Not a, uh, you're, you're, you know, this part of my mind is bad or wrong somehow. It wasn't that. It was just, yeah, that needs to be seen, but not right now. So let me just cultivate this other side of, of a little more ease in the mind right now. So this is this um, kind of back and forth with mindfulness. The mindfulness supports us in, in multiple ways. It helps us to recognize the suffering that's embedded in that craving. It helps us to, um, to see the ignorance that's kind of infused in the craving and the, in the aversion and the greed. The ignorance, the, the belief, the ignorance of having this thing will make me happy, getting rid of this thing will make me happy. That's just a, it's, it's just a belief, it's a view that has been trained into us. And so that view begins to be seen as a, as a view, as a belief. And, and we, um, we start to have a different approach with it. Seeing that view or belief, we might be able to say, okay, I'm going to suspend, I'm going to just suspend belief in that for a little while. I still believe it. Some part of me believes it perhaps, but maybe I can, instead of believing it to the point of following through on it, explore this possibility of turning towards the experience itself. And so this is part of how the mindfulness supports us is seeing through the, uh, the delusions and the ignorance that are embedded in that craving. To see the suffering of that craving itself allows this natural movement towards well-being to begin to recalibrate. And it also helps us in this cultivation of, of times of ease, of times of settledness that helps us to understand there's a different way of happiness, a different, whole different approach to happiness than having what we want. I'll explore, I'll just give one last example of, of this from my own practice because it really kind of highlights that shift in the mind around um, you know, seeing how the, um, the wanting might be able to fall away. So I was, um, I was on a retreat and doing uh, a lot of walking meditation. And this was a longer retreat. And during this particular retreat, they had encouraged us not to look around at other, at other people. So, um, you know, it's just kind of keeping my gaze down. And, and, th- and they had said, you know, if you look around at other people, a lot of judgments will come up. So this is just a kind of a way to minimize judgments. So that's what, how I was practicing. That was the instruction. And I was keeping my gaze about six feet down on the ground. So I saw a lot of socks. And um, noticed as this was going on, there was so much desire to look and see who those socks belonged to. So I was noticing that. But, but first, at first, I was just following the rules rigidly. It's like, oh. Not supposed to look. Want to look? Not supposed to look. Okay. You know, it's kind of like I felt like a horse with blinders on. It's like, just keep it there. And it was almost a kind of a forcing to not look. 
at some point, because this retreat was long, it was a three-month retreat, and after a couple of weeks of this, I began to recognize, ah, oh, this, this kind of forcing, that kind of feels like a suffering too. And what's going on there is the wanting. I'm wanting to look. They've told us we can see the wanting, so why don't I try noticing the wanting instead of just forcing myself to not act on the wanting? That was a big shift. Just that shift was huge. It's like, oh, this wanting can be seen. And so I began exploring that, looking. It's like, okay, so seeing socks, it's like, oh, wanting to look. Not following through on the looking, but noticing the wanting. So this is a kind of a a knife edge, actually. What does it mean to not repress the wanting? To not say, not going to look, but also not follow through on it while allowing the wanting to be known. It's a completely different approach. So not saying, I can't look, but also not following through. There's this middle terrain, and the Buddha did call this the middle path. The middle terrain of fully allowing the feeling of wanting and then looking at that, being with it, without allowing that wanting to express itself in action. So it's a kind of a delicate inner exploration, like fully allowing that feeling and not letting it leak out into action. So that's what I began exploring, is, is that feeling. And it had a really strong pull to it. So every time I saw socks, it'd be like, mm, this like mm, magnetic pull to the socks to look up. So just feeling that, feeling the unsatisfying quality of that, the, the, the kind of stickiness of that. And then watching and seeing, and at one point, to one, this went on for another, I don't know, week or so, watching in this way, seeing the wanting. And then I began to notice that the wanting would arise at certain points and pass at certain points. So I would see that as soon as, I would, I would often, to kind of minimize this, I'd be walking in a place where there weren't many people. And so I would be walking, and then I would notice, like in my peripheral vision, somebody pop into my field of peripheral vision. The wanting began immediately. It's like the the condition of seeing, the wanting began. And then the wanting was strong. While they were in the possibility of being looked at, the wanting was very strong. They kind of, sometimes I remember one person like came up this side of me, then walked in front of me. Boy, the wanting was really strong right there. All it would have taken would be just this little flick of the eyes to look up. The really strong wanting there. And then the person walked up the stairs, went into the building, and disappeared, and the wanting vanished in that moment. And that was another really important um, moment in my experience, because when the wanting vanished, it felt like being released from a vice grip. There's a huge release of the suffering, and the, the, the big piece that the mind learned there, too, is not only that the release of that wanting was a different kind of happiness, but also that the wanting didn't have to be followed through on in order for happiness to follow. So it kind of exposed that delusion, that ignorance that was embedded in the wanting, that the only way to have happiness is to follow through on that wanting. It's like there was a better happiness that, was, that happened, that, that release from that kind of vice grip feeling, that was a, a, a 
just a completely easeful place that had a different kind of like resonance in, in the system than having the split second of knowing, oh, that was the person that, that, that those socks were attached to. That kind of happiness of getting that knowing, you know, not terribly satisfying. This release from wanting, a much more, um, much more of a sense of actual well-being that came with that. So this is the possibility of bringing mindfulness to our practice. And we do need to cultivate both sides. The cultivation of the willingness to meet the suffering of the reactivity, but knowing when it's not so possible. And also this cultivation of the, this different kind of, of happiness, of, of just exploring being at ease with what's coming into our experience not having to either ignore sound or ignore things that are not our preference. But just like, oh, well, that's not my preference, but yeah, it's happening easily that the mind is hearing that. No problem. So we cultivate that side too as a kind of an avenue or understanding of a different kind of well-being that's possible. So we have some time for comments, questions, reflections... Yeah, there's a there's a there's a, a button on the side, uh, right? It's on the side underneath that white that white. There we go. Is that it? Yes. Ah. <laughs> Man, you brought up so much stuff. At least for me, that triggered. Uh, I don't know. I could spend the whole day. Talking about things you Oh, we could me. talk about this for a long time. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay, let's see. How do I start this off? Uh, mindfulness, to me, is exhausting. Because um, there's a thing in nature that whatever nature does, it does so with the least expenditure of e- energy. And to me, mindfulness is constantly requiring energy to separate the gross from the subtle. Uh, You talked about um, hearing, and so I chose to uh, use the meditation to notice my hearing and the sounds that I'm hearing. And I notice the arising and passing of cars as they went by, or a train or somebody breathing. And I noticed that it's difficult in our life because we're so bombarded with visual images and sounds all the time that in order to pay attention to the subtleties, it takes too much work. And so I tend to just notice the gross and the subtle doesn't come up anymore because it's too much work to notice the subtle. And I think that's what pulls away for me. It's hard to be mindful because there's so much coming at me. And so a couple of thoughts. I have and, a couple and, thoughts. And and also it. I am so intimately um aware of craving because I'm a recovering alcoholic addict. And um 
It's very difficult to be mindful in the grip of a mental, emotional, and yes. physical withdrawal. Yes. And that's where the learning how to turn the attention to something else can be useful. Um, so a couple of thoughts. Um, um, one, I think often we think of mindfulness as being something that takes a lot of effort. Um, the continuing to kind of remind ourselves to be mindful does take effort. Um, and that's a lot of what we try in our, in our sitting practice, is that reminding, reminding ourselves to be aware. Um, and, and, but what I'd say is that, uh, I'll give an analogy, um, kind of like if you want to start uh, riding a scooter, uh, one of those little kick scooters, not a motorized scooter, and you have your foot on the platform, and you have to, you know, to start tapping on the ground to go. You know, the initially, you know, you might, you could, like, put your foot down and push really hard, but it really just takes some gentle taps to get it going. And then you can ride for a little while. Then you start noticing it get wobbly, and then you put your foot down and gentle tap again to get the momentum. And so the that analogy of kind of just gentle reminders, often I think that some of the the effort or struggle with mindfulness comes partly because we think, I need to stay mindful. And what we can do for about, you know, when we're starting especially, uh, you know, we can pretty reliably for maybe half a second be aware of something. And then the mind will tend to slip out. <laughs> and so we, we have to keep reminding ourselves and so there's, there's the, 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 the kind of a gentle reminding. It's like, you know, okay, be, be aware right now of this experience. And now this one. And we can actually, um, if there's a strong something going on, we can use the visual field to support us. Um, so let's do this all right now in this room. Um, so this is a kind of a meditation technique that helps if we're really caught by something. Um, so we have the capacity to, for a split second, attend to something and be aware of it. And then we can, in that, then switch to something else. And so kind of a switch, a switch, a switch, connect to something, and then switch, connect, and switch. And so we'll do this in this room by finding corners. So any place two lines come together, find a corner and look at it and just know, okay, there's that corner. And then switch to another one and switch to another one. So look, connect, and switch. About every half a second to second. Helpful to move your head also while doing this. So we'll do this for like 20 seconds. Find a corner, connect, switch. So, how was that? Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's a good, that's a good technique. Because like it, it basically uses that capacity of our mind to connect to something. Yeah. And then we, we know in that split second, another thing. And so this is like that tap, 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 mindful tap. Moments. Mindful, moments. mindful moments. Exactly. Okay. 
And so, and so you, could, you could even do this for like 30, 40 seconds and you'll get a little bit of relief from something that the mind is hooked to. So this is that light kind of connection. So another piece around this is that with a little bit of momentum, so initially it is, like what's natural for us to notice is the obvious stuff. That's, of course, we'll notice the obvious stuff first. And yet as the mindfulness begins to develop its momentum, not our doing it, but just that, that we get to the place where we can more ride the mindfulness, which takes time and will happen from time to time. It won't, we, we often have to keep doing it. You, when you can stop pedaling and glide, then it's kind of like naturally the, the mindfulness does begin to pick up on the subtler. And so that's when it's more easeful when we're gliding. And so it's, it, it is, what I'd say is that the light touch is important to cultivate how to do that light touch so that we're not like, okay, got to be, gotta be aware for the next 30 minutes. It's just like, no, half a second. Oh, next half a second. And we'll get lost at points in there, of course. But it's, it's a much lighter touch. And that can also be available at times in our daily lives. And, uh, you know, another, another thing that's useful is not to necessarily try to sustain mindfulness in daily life, but more just recognize when mindfulness returns. Because it will return. It'll return when we're driving. It'll return when we're walking down the street. There's just this moment of, oh, I'm back. I'm aware. And just notice that. Kind of highlight that for yourself, that you have become aware. And that one is completely effortless because you didn't have anything to do with it. It just arose. And so there it is, effortless mindfulness. It'll have its own life. It'll last a little while, probably shorter rather than longer, especially initially. But that practice of just noticing those moments of mindfulness returning is a kind of a, it's, it, there's a little bit of effort needed to connect with that as, oh, this is mindfulness. But then you don't try to hold on to it. That this is actually one of my main mindfulness practices in daily life, is just noticing those moments of mindfulness returning and getting on with my day. So it, it, it gives you moments of kind of effortless mindfulness, but the, the recognition of them, uh, the kind of um, learning to get familiar with them, begins to point them out more to us. So we get more of those effortless moments. And as we notice them more, we get even more of them. And it just becomes this very light practice that's not a lot of churning up the energy. If we're trying to do mindfulness all day long, we probably don't do it. But this kind of thing is a much lighter touch. So, yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah. And it's time to stop. So, thank you all. commercials on TV and how much I 